Welcome back to Curious Combinations, an Everything's Unoriginal podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering episode one and episode two of the French show on Netflix, Marianne. So when I started this project, I was coming off a long streak of great shows with very few duds. It was Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, Squid Game, The Duchess, Umbrella Academy. Sure, I didn't really enjoy October Faction or You or Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but I was coming across more hits than misses. Since I've started podcasting in addition to reacting, though, I swear I almost feel like I've jinxed myself somehow. Dark was one of the worst disappointments I've ever had in terms of entertainment, and while Archive 81 perhaps had a certain narmy charm, I think I might be looking at a score of 0 out of 3 as I move into the first two episodes of Marianne. Here's hoping I'll eat my words very shortly, but so far, I think it's kind of awful. So let's get into this recap. Marianne opens with a quote from Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Specifically, it's a quote from Chapter 8, The Elf Child and the Minister. And for those that don't know, at this point in the story, Hester Prynne, the woman bearing the titular Scarlet Letter, has a bastard daughter named Pearl who was conceived by a secret affair with the town's minister. Pearl's father's identity is a mystery to the townspeople at large, and she's a tiny weirdo, hence calling her an elf child. As far as the townsfolk are concerned, the bastard child of that scarlet woman Hester might as well be the child of the fae, a demon, or the devil himself. Which brings us to the quote that Marianne uses for its premiere episode. Marianne uses only a part of it, but I will be quoting it here in its entirety. As they descended the steps, it is averred that the lattice of a chamber window was thrown open, and forth into the sunny day was thrust the face of Mistress Hibbins, Governor Bellingham's bitter-tempered sister, and the same who, a few years later, was executed as a witch. Hist, hist, said she, while her ill-omened physiognomy seemed to cast a shadow over the cheerful newness of the house. Wilt thou go with us tonight? There will be a merry company in the forest, and I will nigh promise the black man that comely Hester Prynne should make one. Make my excuses to him, so please you, answered Hester, with a triumphant smile. I must tarry at home, and keep watch over my little pearl. Had they taken her from me, I would gladly have gone with thee into the forest, and signed my name in the black man's book too, and that with mine own blood. We shall have thee there anon, said the witch lady, frowning, as she drew back her head. But here, if we suppose this interview betwixt Mistress Hibbins and Hester Prynne to be authentic and not a parable, was already an illustration of the young minister's argument against sundering the relation of a fallen mother to the offspring of her frailty. Even thus early had the child saved her from Satan's snare. After seeing these first two episodes of the show, it's no secret why this was chosen. Marianne is playing with historical tropes of European witchcraft, women who became witches by cavorting with the devil and demons. If you're familiar with the movie The Witch, that's not far off from accurate to what people thought was actually possible. Women were seen as inherently weak and lustful and sinful, and they were easily seduced to sin and filth and blood magic via sex and indulgence. They would then sign their names in the devil's book, supposedly gaining a witch's or devil's mark that would mark them as subservient to Satan, conveniently giving witch hunters an excuse to strip and torture them, and then off the witches would go to try to get other women to sign the book, too. It's all very silly, but that's Christianity for you. Now, I am far from ready to say just how much this is going to tie into the plot of Marianne overall, but we've got an evil witch being called the wife of a demon, and she's been introduced with a quote from Mistress Hibbins. So, shall this story have its own pearl to save some Hester from signing the book? Perhaps. But who in this story would be Hester? Emma is the obvious candidate, but I cannot tell you how much displeasure it will bring me if this butch woman is saved at the end of this story by having a fucking baby. Now, the opening shot of the show proper is of a hole in the ground. It's rather the ring, with the implication that our villain is trapped down in this hole and looking out at the world she intends to wreak havoc upon. We've no real information on this yet, but I look forward to finding out what this is all about. If nothing else, it adds a heaping helping of creepy imagery to the story, and that does seem to be this show's primary strength in terms of its horror. Next, we're on to the home of our titular witch demon, not that we know it yet. Caroline, a young woman who looks far more haggard than her age should allow, walks through her house before a backdrop of Emma Larsman's horror novels. She's looking for her mother, the woman who will soon learn is obsessed with Emma's books and possessed by Marianne. And when she finds her mother, the old woman is talking to herself in the kitchen and pulling out her own teeth with a truly terrifying smile. She's insisting that Caroline is actually named Catherine, and since that keeps happening, it surely means something for our overall mystery. Though I've no idea what just yet. Given that this scene introduces our villain, I will say up front that the actress playing Marianne is carrying this show all by herself. Not a joke. The fate of this show rests upon her shoulders, 
because she is far and away the most talented person I've seen involved so far. The show has dialogue issues and tone issues, and it's way too silly at times, but this woman is just knocking it out of the park with her facial acting. I'm going to be singing her praises throughout this recap, because honestly, there's not a ton else here that I enjoyed. In our next scene, we're introduced to our asshole of a main character, Emma. She is a mess and a half. An unrealistically famous and wealthy author after only 10 years of writing a single book series, and one has to imagine that the demon helped her out here given how implausible her career trajectory is otherwise. Emma is touring to promote the conclusion of her Lizzie Lark series, and her idea of promoting her work and hyping up her fans is to read the end of the series to an unsuspecting crowd. It is horrific behavior that Emma will repeat over and over again throughout these first two episodes. She makes it explicitly and repeatedly clear that she has no respect for her readers. She seems to outright hate them at times, and I honestly kind of want to wring her neck. When someone's shocked that she's just spoiled her book for them, her only response is that she doesn't care if they buy it or not, as if that is the point here. Bitch, who cares about your bank account right now? You have been writing this series for 10 years, and you just unapologetically spoiled the ending before anyone could read it? Like, people invested up to 10 years of their lives into your art, and that apparently means nothing to you. You just purposefully ruined it for them for no apparent reason other than, like, spite, I guess? Being a dickhead for the fun of it? Like, Emma comes across throughout these two episodes as emotionally on par with a 13-year-old edgelord little boy, taking nothing seriously and doing things for no reason other than to get a negative reaction out of people. She acts like an internet troll. She seems to appreciate nothing and no one and has no gratitude toward the people who fund her lifestyle, has no warm feelings toward those who enjoy her art, has no positive relationships to speak of, and doesn't even appear to have any hobbies beyond drinking. She won't even fucking write anymore, but that's a whole other can of worms I don't want to open just yet. We will get there, I promise, and oh boy do I have thoughts on the subject. So after the Q&A, Emma heads out onto the street for a breath of fresh air because being rude to her fans is very taxing work. And then we meet our second most important female character, Emma's assistant, Camille. It could not be more obvious that while Emma is an abusive boss to Camille, Camille has some degree of feelings for her. It's not necessarily sexual or romantic, but given the heavy religious themes happening here, not to mention Emma's butch style and the frat boy personality and complete lack of emotion that she shows when her boyfriend dumps her, I have distinct worries that this is going to turn out to be a story of queer women being punished for straying from heteronormativity, but I suppose we'll see. Next, we're off to Emma's book signing. It becomes clear in this scene that Emma is both an alcoholic trying to keep her addiction secret – she literally bribes a fan into pretending he didn't notice that she was drinking – and she's being written by a fucking boomer, if not an age, then at least at heart. A teenage female fan, the only type of fan she should have in the first place according to Emma's shitty judgmental attitude, bemoans the non-ending of the Lizzie Lark series, and Emma's only response is to tell her to quote, make up her own so that it will keep her from playing on her phone all day. Now, I am about a decade older than the generation of teenagers who grew up with smartphones, but on their behalf, allow me to offer a resounding fuck you. This is a teen girl at a book signing. She has got your books, she is wearing your merch, and she is obviously a fucking fan. You know what she's probably doing in her free time? A girl like that is reading books and ebooks, writing reviews on Goodreads, or she's booktubing. She's sharing headcanons on Tumblr and Twitter. She's creating manips and fan art on Tumblr and DeviantArt. She's making TikToks about your character. And yes, she is making up her own ending because that is called fanfiction, and humans have been creating it since the dawn of fucking storytelling. And all you've got to say to her is essentially, get off your phone. The more I see of Emma, the more I cannot fucking stand her. She is just so shitty to everyone around her, and as the scene in which she reads out the ending shows us, people love her for her awful behavior. She is unapologetically rude and hateful to everyone around her, regardless of whether they're praising her, doing her favors, or justly criticizing her. And for some reason, the show is acting like she's this lovable jerk character. She's not. Though I will say that it is perhaps refreshing to see this character written as female. We've seen this character a billion times before. The rich asshole that gets rewarded for his incredibly dismissive, condescending shittiness. Tony Stark. There. I said it. It's rare, though, to see a woman operate that way at all, let alone to be rewarded for it the way male characters are. If a female character acts this way, it's almost never left unspoken that she needs to get her shit together. Usually, a female character with flaws of this kind and to this degree is told very early in the narrative that she had better shape up before people turn on her, which is accurate given that people in real life are much quicker to turn on rich, famous, and powerful women than their male equivalents. 
and I do wonder if it's Emma's masculinity that saves her from being treated the way more traditionally feminine flawed characters usually are. I suppose we will see what happens on that front. As it stands, I assume that what we're doing with Emma is setting her up as a deeply flawed person so that she can have a heroic sacrifice in the end, tying thematically into the Lizzie Lark finale that she read aloud so recently, but I believe this show was cancelled in spite of hope for future seasons, so who knows what the end of season one will involve. If we are going toward a redemption through self-sacrifice ending, though, it's that's also very masculine. Women almost never get arcs like that. Anyway, a woman wants a book signed for her mother. Except she doesn't. The woman in question is Carolyn, an old friend of Emma's who hasn't seen her in 15 years. And over the past 10 years, her mom has lost her mind to an obsession with Emma's Lizzie Lark series. Carolyn's mother thinks she is literally Marianne, and there's little question for the audience that this is true. Marianne is real, Carolyn's mother is possessed, and everyone is in danger. But Carolyn seems to think that this is somehow Emma's fault, which is insane troll logic at its finest. She claims that her mother hurt her father, the implication being that she killed him and perhaps is keeping his corpse in that locked room in her house, and that it's all because of Emma. She tells Emma that Marianne wants to see her and that Emma has to go home to the seaside town of Eldon, and that she knows the Lizzie Lark books are based on Emma's dreams. Then, as Emma calls for security, Carolyn pulls out the disgusting trinket on the cover of the final Lizzie book. It's a patch of human skin tied into a bag with tangled locks of human hair, and it opens up to reveal bloodied human teeth. Now, before we move on, I want to say that I need you to try to actually imagine experiencing this in real life, not watching it on TV, not watching it happen to characters, actually experiencing it in person, with all of the senses that would bring. That little trinket is literally flayed skin, matted hair, and bloody teeth. Imagine what it would really feel like to touch. Imagine what it must smell like to be near that thing. And then reconcile that with how every time Emma sees it, she has little to no reaction to it at all. She doesn't even seem to clock it as gross or dangerous or threatening in any capacity. Hell, she chucks the next one she sees into a bush like it's not obvious evidence of some kind of a crime. I cannot believe I have to say this, but apparently I do. If you see someone carrying around what looks like freshly flayed human skin, it is your job to call the fucking police. Anyway, according to Carolyn, she has to keep her eyes open at all times while in Marianne's house. Marianne stands outside her bedroom all night watching her and waiting for her to close her eyes, and when she finally did close her eyes, Marianne carved a bunch of symbols into her torso, and again, that's behavior that requires you call the police. Like, what are you talking about? So, security at this venue is apparently useless, and their attempt at dragging Carolyn away is thwarted by a tiny bit of flailing, and Carolyn breaks free to sob at Emma that Marianne is going to kill her, and she's spitting everywhere as she does it, and it is some of the nastiest shit I've ever seen. Like, if you want me to throw up, on-screen spit is the way to do it, yes. There's literally no reason for this other than to be viscerally disgusting, and I just have to ask why. Like, we got that she was unhinged from her dialogue and her acting. Why do you guys think I need to vomit in order to get the point? Ew. Emma, though, Emma is barely even phased. She goes out drinking with Camille, and we see her slam down five shots of what looks like straight liquor within two minutes. And it's another little moment of why. Like, we know she's an alcoholic at this point. She snuck alcohol into her signing and was pretending to just be drinking a soda. Like, that's enough to tell us she's an alcoholic. This scene is ludicrous. She is a petite woman, as far as I can tell, and she barely shows any significant effects of slamming this many shots back this quickly. So you add those two things together and can only come away with the conclusion that whatever she's drinking must have a pretty low alcohol content which doesn't exactly emphasize for me how crazy her drinking is. I just came away from the scene with this weird impression that the creators think this is like some kind of a cool expression of female alcohol consumption, just the way that everything Emma does seems to be this weird flavor of self-harming coolness. It's just a strange choice. I got a weird vibe. Anyway, Emma explains throughout all of this that Carolyn really was an old friend and that Emma really does write about her dreams. Her nightmares, as a matter of fact, stopped when she started writing, with the implications of a horrific twist on the idea of writing through your trauma. Instead of writing it down to process it, she seems to have written it into existence. And that's definitely an interesting premise, though certainly one that's been done before. So Emma arrives home, insisting that she isn't drunk, which, again, is a pretty weird way to portray alcoholism. It's in the problematic nature of the drunkenness that the denial lies, not in the state of drunkenness at all. 
and she discovers that her boyfriend has gone to bed angry about being stood up. She doesn't try to wake him up, and she simply gets in bed beside him. Now, to double down on this as a piss-poor portrayal of alcoholism, drinking heavily is scientifically proven to reduce REM cycles. After drinking, Emma shouldn't be having nightmares like this. Realistically, vivid dreams and nightmares come the night after drinking heavily. Granted, Emma's dreams do seem genuinely supernaturally caused, I suppose, but still. All I'm saying is that I really think the writers here are dealing with themes that they haven't actually experienced, and aren't portraying particularly accurately, and aren't really treating with the respect that they deserve. Alcohol isn't, like, a quirky personality trait. The definition of alcoholism is that it's drinking that interferes with your day-to-day -day function. It's not cute. It's not fun. I don't know. This just really rubbed me the wrong way. Like, they just wanted to use the alcoholic writer trope without actually understanding alcoholism or alcoholics, and... I'm not a fan of that. But regardless of reality, Emma wakes in the middle of the night, and that part is very accurate to heavy drinking, to find someone watching her from the hall. It is, of course, Marianne, and Emma tries to wake her boyfriend for help, but he will not wake. When she turns back to the door, the scene pretty skillfully escalates the creepiness. Marianne is flat on the floor, kind of slide-crawling over the carpet like some bizarre monster. But then they ruin it. Marianne's creepy whisper is fine. It's what she says that's the problem. Give me your foot she demands, and I fell the fuck out. Give me your foot? Give me your foot? That is the single funniest shit she could have possibly said. Like, it is such a horror trope. The monster that's coming to grab you by the ankle and drag you under the bed or something like that. It's a super common thing for kids especially to be terrified of. There are plenty of adults who won't even let a foot hang off the edge of the bed over this exact fear. It shows up in horror movies all the time. The first paranormal activity film springs to mind. And if you find the trope enjoyably frightening, I do suggest going to check out SCP-072 for a fun little micro-horror story. But just having the monster come right out and be like, yo, give me your foot. I simply cannot deal with that. What is that? What happened there? That is hilarious, and it took all of the tension out of the scene. Marianne's spooky hand creeping over the side of the bed and Emma's bolt upright awakening do nothing to restore the fearful atmosphere, nor does the reveal that this was a false awakening involving Pierre being possessed and Carolyn's mother hovering over Emma's body. Creating effective horror demands that one walk a very fine line of maintaining tension. A single misstep can ruin the whole attempt, and dear God, did give me your foot ruin that scene. So then, Emma truly wakes up, and she finds another note from her boyfriend claiming that he has taken his shit and bounced. Given the other mysteriously disappearing people in this story, one has to wonder if Pierre genuinely escaped his relationship with Emma, or if Marianne killed, possessed, or otherwise destroyed him too, without Emma even realizing or caring. She certainly doesn't seem to care that she's been broken up with, if nothing else, and not even in person, on a call, or via text. She got dumped through a fucking post-it, and she doesn't even seem to give that a second thought. Instead, our next scene is just a series of artful shots of Emma walking toward the camera, and when she finally arrives at her publishing house, Camille tells Emma that Carolyn is already in the building waiting for her. She's way up on an upper floor balcony, and she climbs over the railing with no ambiguity about what she's about to do. Around a dozen people gather to watch her stand on a ledge, put a noose around her neck, and rant for at least two solid minutes. And not a single living soul moves to go help this poor bitch. Like, at the very least, someone needed to call the French equivalent of 911. And if there was a single person worth a damn in this entire crowd, they would have sprinted their ass upstairs to grab Carolyn before she fell. Like, this isn't even a depressed person making the perhaps irrational decision to hang herself. This isn't a chronically ill or terminal patient deciding to go out on their own terms. This is a ranting woman in the midst of incredibly obvious psychosis. There is literally one thing to do in this situation. This is not morally ambiguous. You need to go try to save her crazy ass so she can get some fucking help. But no, everyone just silently watches her because... They're not the main characters, I guess? In the midst of Carolyn's ramblings, we get a reference to a lighthouse quote at the beginning, which is a little kernel of something interesting, but I can't lie. While the backstory here has the potential to be interesting, I would have already bailed on this series if I wasn't covering it for the podcast. These first two episodes are all over the place and messy, and the little artistic shots of maybe important lighthouses aren't really enough to hook me. I want to know what's up with this lighthouse and with Marianne and with whatever happened back in Emma's childhood, but like, if you want me to have patience for your story to get there, 
you have to keep me entertained with something else in the meantime. And in case you can't tell from the tone of my recap so far, I am not largely entertained by this show at this point. And it's only going to get worse from here, at least in regards to episodes 1 and 2. Carolyn drops a cross necklace to the ground and tells Emma to bring it back to her mother, and then she jumps. Again, I repeat, literally no one tries to stop her or help her either before or after she is killed. It is incredibly depressing, and it's such an easy thing to fix. Just show a couple of people rushing toward the stairs and another couple calling emergency services. Just give me some kind of hint that the extras here are meant to be portraying actual humans instead of completely blank NPCs. Anyway, when the police finally get here, Emma is inexplicably reticent to believe that Carolyn's threats against her parents are anything to be concerned about. She's got this wide-eyed faux innocence about her in this scene, making it incredibly clear that she's not actually not concerned. She's merely in denial and trying to convince the people around her that the possible danger her parents are facing is no big deal. She refuses to call them. The dialogue is literally just, I don't feel like it. And she insists that worrying will not help anything. But as we'll see throughout the rest of the episode, her parents are in danger, and Emma is seemingly incapable of taking the increasingly ominous and bizarre situation seriously. She works up the nerve to call her parents, eventually, but they don't answer. Sometime later, presumably the Monday after the previous scene's Friday, and Emma has been wearing the exact same outfit in every scene for days now, by the way, she gets Camille to pick her up to drive out to Eldon to check on her parents. Apparently, she's been calling the neighbors, too, and when the neighbors went out to check, quote, the house was empty. And she really only seems nominally concerned. She's going to go check on them, yes, and she says she'll be relieved when she sees them, but she doesn't seem all that anxious or worried or anything. In fact, she decides to take a nap while Camille drives, after, of course, dropping a line about how her parents sent her off to boarding school when she was a teen. And there's this shitty little interaction between her and Camille that's very much a toxic little boy pulls girls pigtails because he likes her kind of interaction. It's another weird moment of Emma acting not like a grown woman, but like a little boy, not to mention another moment of hinting at something quasi-shippy between Emma and Camille. And I hate it. Like, these two seem practically designed to be shipped, and yet I find the idea of shipping them kind of repulsive right now. Emma just sucks so much. Anyway, it's here that I think the show makes its next big mistake, if I'm honest. Until now, there's only been one moment of feeling untethered, for lack of a better word. Emma's false awakening was obviously designed to trick the viewer into believing that Emma was awake when she was actually dreaming. But from here on out, it's going to become increasingly unclear when Emma is dreaming versus what is actually happening. Honestly, there's parts that I'm still not entirely sure about, and I don't even get the feeling that it's properly purposeful. We go from Emma getting into the back of the car to take a nap, to long, establishing shots of Eldon, to a split-second jump scare of Marianne, and then Emma's back in the front seat, answering Camille's questions about Marianne. Between the flash to Marianne and Camille's inexplicable questions, I got the feeling here that Emma was dreaming this. But unless there's going to be some grand it-was-all-just-a-dream scene sometime in the future, no, this must have actually happened. It's an odd choice, one that I may turn out to quite enjoy in retrospect if it builds to something properly interesting, but right now it's the first instance of me feeling kind of lost at sea in terms of this story. I think part of it is that the way these scenes are done, I'm not convinced that I'm supposed to feel off balance or uncertain as to what's real and what's not. I feel like I'm supposed to be keeping up with the show, and I'm just not. Over and over again, scenes that feel like dreams turn out to be real, and I have no idea what to think of that yet. I'm really hoping that these choices will turn out to be artistically justified in the long run. Best case scenario, I will be genuinely gushing over the genius of them by the end of the show. But right now, it just feels kind of clumsy, especially taken in conjunction with some of the tonal whiplash that we're going to see soon. Anyway. Camille admits that she doesn't read Emma's books, and so Emma explains Marianne to her. She's a witch and the wife of a demon, whatever that means, but she operates like a demon. She can possess and influence people, and she can lie about anything and everything, save one subject. If you ask her name, she cannot give you a false answer. She can avoid answering, she can distract you or change the subject, but she cannot claim to be someone that she isn't. If you ask her who she is, she can only answer that she is Marianne. It's another little beat of horror that's really intriguing. It's just too bad I'm not yet sold on the idea that the rest of the story is matching its quality. Ominously, the scene ends with Emma revealing how Lizzie Lark defeats Marianne in the books. Lizzie dies, and it's another big moment of foreshadowing for Emma potentially sacrificing herself at the end of this. 
Inexplicably, our next scene finds Emma walking out on some kind of a key. Why is she out there? Beyond staring at that lighthouse while Marianne calls for her and a bunch of children sing a creepy-ass song about her, I have literally no idea. But she turns around to find that she's trapped out there by a priest and his shepherd. And this scene, oh boy, this scene, it is some of the cringiest shit I've seen in a while. There's this insidious-like scare cord, and Emma does this weird turn at the waist to check behind her, and the whole confrontation is just awful acting. And I'm including the fucking dog in that assessment, by the way. If you've ever handled an actually aggressive dog, it should be very obvious that this dog is not aggressive at all. Look at the scene when the dog looks back at the priest. That dog is completely 100% relaxed and awaiting his next command. He is visibly not actually struggling with fear, anxiety, and impulse control the way so many so-called aggressive dogs do. I don't really know if there's anything that they could have done better here, given that I have no idea how dog acting works, but yeah, this was another give-me-your-foot moment for me. Like, you've managed to hit silly instead of scary again, and I'm sorry, I guess? Anyway, the dialogue is genuinely awful here. Emma's dialogue is awful, the priest's dialogue is awful, and everyone's behavior is bizarre and irrational. Why is Emma so scared of this priest? He's not intimidating, and he's not even really threatening her. Why is she not just shrugging this off and laughing in his face? I hope that it is a somewhat poorly done nod to some priest-related trauma in Emma's backstory, because otherwise, this scene is just 100% ridiculous. From here, Emma rushes Camille. They're going to go to Carolyn's house to give Caro's mom her cross, and then they're going to go check on Emma's parents. And I've got to ask, why didn't the police take Carolyn's cross? Did Emma hide it from them? Surely it's the job of the police or the funeral home or someone else to give the cross back to Carolyn's mom. Not Emma's job. If it were me, I would be handing that thing over the second I got the chance. I don't want that shit, and I don't want to talk to your crazy mom, either. But Emma, apparently, is not like me. Emma and Camille go to Marianne's house without much trepidation beyond Emma's insistence that Camille come with her, despite the fact that the ramshackle house is mostly boarded over. At first, it seems like there's no one actually in the house. And then there's Marianne's creepy-ass face with the fucking scariest smile I have ever seen. This woman, Mireille Herbstmeier, and you'll have to forgive my woeful attempt at pronunciation, is unbelievable and deserves to have her talent showcased in way more than just one Netflix show. This woman deserves to have her own Conjuring-level horror series. Like, get this bitch to Hollywood. I am not joking. The flawless, unblinking sly back into the darkness that she does, it is so delightfully fucking creepy. However much they paid her for this role, she deserves more. So Camille and Emma head into the woman's house, and Marianne invites them to sit down while her pet crow squawks at them, and when Emma gives her Carolyn's cross, I laughed my fucking ass off. Herbstmeyer's acting is just so perfect. The look on her face when she has to kind of quasi-politely take this cross without wanting to touch it is some of the best shit I've ever seen. This woman is carrying this entire show on her back, I swear to God. The way she just tosses the cross into a pile of junk like they're not gonna notice, the way she is so malicious childlike in her appreciation of the horrible and exciting things in Emma's books. It's just fucking delightful. And then this goddamn show just has to take it a step too far and completely ruin my fun. In what I can only hope is a deliberate reference to The Exorcist, because at least then there's some kind of an artistic point to it. Carolyn's mom pisses herself with that same enormous smile on her face. And like, no offense, but spare me, forever spare me, from the whole filth thing when it comes to demon stories. I love a demon-centric horror story. It's a little hypocritical part of my heart that I truly detest Christianity, but really enjoy these Abrahamic mythology horror stories. But this medieval renaissance thing of demons being associated with bodily fluids is just fucking awful. I hate it. Let us leave that shit in the past with the witch trials, can we please? The only bodily fluids I want to see in a horror movie are blood and tears. No spit, no snot, no piss, no shit, no semen. If I wanted to see that shit, I would go get a job as a babysitter. Disgusting. And this show can't even leave it at the pissing. Marianne is all pleased with herself, and Camille is apparently either a saint or the world's biggest doormat, because she's immediately on her feet and trying to help. And Marianne grabs Camille's hand to shove it in Carolyn's mother's crotch. As in, Marianne sexually assaults Camille, and it will never be mentioned again. Fucking what? So... Off they drive to Emma's parents' house, the camera lingering over this shot of a fallen tree that I imagine is going to be meaningful in the future. 
On Emma's parents' doorknob, Emma finds another hair and skin and teeth monstrosity, and she just casually tosses it into the bushes as if it's like a dog turd she found on the porch and not evidence of a fucking crime. She calls for her parents from outside the door, and when they don't answer, she ends up breaking in. She keeps looking for them in the house, and then she hears her mother gasping and moaning, and it's very clear that this bitch is just getting railed. She's not scared. She's not in danger. She's getting fucked. And Emma just completely overreacts. Just completely. Like, she's the one who broke in. Her parents, her parents are definitely allowed to fuck in their own home. Why, why is she pretending that the problem is that she walked in on them fucking? The problem is that they haven't been answering their phone for days and the neighbors said they vanished. Oh, but you caught them mid-coitus and so you're gonna bail without any questions answered? Like, could you be more dramatic? You didn't even see anybody's bits or anything. Calm down. Being embarrassed, that's one thing. But this, once again, Emma is acting like a 12-year-old boy instead of a grown woman and I am embarrassed for her at this point. She's an increasingly pathetic person. Emma's parents talk her out of abandoning them and end up inviting Emma and Camille to join them for what honestly looks like a pretty awful dinner. Is this normal French food? Because if so, I'm really unimpressed. They talk about the new burglar alarm on the house and about Emma's career shift, and then Emma brings up her interaction with the priest. Her father blames it entirely on her, alluding to something she did in the past and implying that she needs to ask her mother's forgiveness for whatever happened. It's clear that whatever happened is still an oozing, infected wound on the face of the family history. But given that I have no idea what the hell happened, I can make no judgments at this point. If this is actually something that Emma should be apologizing for, then I feel bad for her mother here. If this is some kind of religious nonsense that Emma has no reason to feel bad about, then I want someone to punch her dad in the nose. But given that I have zero context right now, I'm going to refrain from passing any judgment, I suppose. In the next scene, though, the show seems to pick a definitive side. Camille is on Emma's parents' side for some reason. She scolds Emma for having left them as if she's not a 30-year-old goddamn woman. Like, what was she supposed to do? Live at home for the rest of her life? Or only until she found some man to move in with, because God forbid a young woman live her own life. At some point later that night, Camille wakes to the recurrent glow of the lighthouse. She checks to see if Emma is awake, and upon finding that her boss is asleep, Camille gets up to sneak into the bathroom. And I've gotta say, it is the single ugliest bathroom I've ever seen. There's also no sink, as far as I can tell, so um, do French people not wash their fucking hands after they wipe their ass? I refuse to believe that. But Camille has worse problems right now than not being able to wash her hands, if you can believe it, because there's someone on the other side of the bathroom door and they want to come in. Camille had better thank her lucky stars that she'd locked the door behind her because the person out there does not stop at menacingly turning the knob. They actually try to get in. Too frightened to piss now, I suppose, Camille stands up. And if you were worried about her not washing her hands, don't worry because she doesn't fucking wipe herself either. And she wanders into the darkened house. At first, there's nothing out of place, and then Emma's mother walks into the foyer completely naked. For whatever reason, Camille just stands there, and then Emma's mom comes back, still in her birthday suit, and starts violently vomiting onto the floor. Having learned zero lessons from what happened with Carolyn's mother, Camille decides to ask if Emma's mother needs help, and then gets bowled over by Emma's dad, also fully nude. He slaps her across the face, then tells her that this isn't them, whatever the hell that means, and then these two naked weirdos wander away with those familiar carvings in their skin. Camille just sits there in shock for a minute, which is a choice, I guess. Everyone on this show so far seems pretty fucking stupid, if you ask me. So then the alarm goes off and Emma comes out to see what the hell happened. But as soon as Camille mentions Emma's parents, Emma abandons her traumatized ass to go look for her mom and dad. The door is wide open and they're standing naked in the yard, smiling just like Marianne does. And then they take each other by the hand and they walk off. Emma runs after them, screaming, but she sees nothing. And everything goes from being foggy and blue-tinted to foggy and orange-tinted. Why? I don't know. I would talk it up to Emma dreaming this scene, except I'm proven wrong literally every other time that I think she's dreaming, so I don't know. Her dad pops out of nowhere to scream right in her face, and she falls to the ground unconscious. It's all very dramatic and not particularly interesting, if I'm honest. It's definitely not scary, at the very least. But now we're on to the next episode. We open on a quote from Arthur Mockin's The Great God Pan. It reads, Clark had tried his best to disbelieve it all, but at the end of the account, as he had written it in his book, he had placed the inscription et diabolus incarnatus est, et homo factus est, or in English, and the devil became incarnate, and he was made man. 
Now, for the uninformed, The Great God Pan is an 1894 horror story considered by Stephen King to be one of the best ever written, perhaps the best ever written in English, period. I will admit upfront that I haven't actually read this story yet, but when you're a fan of horror literature, there's no avoiding references to it, so I have a passing familiarity, and every intention of reading the story myself once I find the time. The gist of it, though, is that there is a mysterious woman who is driving men to madness and to suicide. This woman turns out to be the half-human child of the Greek god Pan, from whom the Christian devil derives the satyr-like description more commonly seen prior to Milton's writing Paradise Lost. So we have Hester Prynne and her elf child Pearl, we have Pan and his daughter Helen Vaughn, aka Mrs. Beaumont, and we have Marianne, who is the wife of a demon, is possessing Carolyn's mother, and keeps calling Carolyn by the wrong name, Catherine. I'd say there's no getting around it. The clues all point to one conclusion here. Marianne, while she was a human witch and not a whatever she is now, was, quote, the wife of a demon and had her own Pearl slash Helen that was named Catherine. What happened to Catherine? Well, since Carolyn hung herself, I'd say there's a good chance that Catherine did too. And who knows? Maybe that's a hint at why there's a connection between Emma and Marianne. If Marianne had a daughter who hung herself and Emma has some kind of a mysterious teen transgression in her past, is it possible that Emma's mysterious, shameful backstory is an attempted suicide? I personally hope not. If this is a town of assholes trying to shame a woman for trying to end her life as a child, I'm gonna have to fight somebody. Like, period. I don't know specifically whose ass I'm gonna have to kick, but that would put me in ass-kicking territory. That would be heinous, and I really hope my theory is wrong. I'm also desperately hoping that these repeated hints of half-demon children are actually going to be confined to backstory elements. I don't want to see either Emma or Camille saddled with a pearl of her own. Then again, maybe Emma is connected to Marianne because Emma herself is a pearl. We've seen her parents, sure, but she doesn't look a damn thing like either one of them. Honestly, anything could happen in this story at this point. But back to the story. Camille finally gets off her ass and goes to look for Emma. It's a weird scene. The alarm finally cuts off, but then the phone rings. The phone that wasn't plugged in last we heard about it. Camille walks toward it, revealing this shadowy hand reaching out for her, which is not scary, mind you. So Camille picks up this ancient 90s handset and talks to a man from the alarm company, and thank goodness he's actually Marianne or whatever, because he is bad at his job. He doesn't even actually verify that Camille belongs in the house. He just asks if she's alone and feeling safe and lures her back into the living room with its wide-open door to the outside, the door through which Emma and her parents have now all vanished and not yet returned. Speaking of their vanishing, though, Camille really gives up on looking for them hella fucking quickly. The second the phone rings, she abandons the idea of trying to find Emma. One wonders if she would have done anything besides stare out that open door all night if the phone hadn't rung. Camille is shockingly useless for someone who kind of seems to be the story's deuteragonist. And the protagonist herself is an asshole, so I'm left wondering who exactly it is that I'm supposed to be rooting for here. Neither mean nor stupid really earned my investment, if I'm being honest. Now, the scene of Camille on the phone, the scene of her approaching the door to close it, it's not terrible. The voice on the phone tells her to turn around and the implication is obvious. She's not really talking to a security worker and someone is obviously in the room with her. But this, unlike a lot of the rest of the horror in this show so far, manages to walk the fine line of tension that horror demands. Both Camille and the audience are, for a moment, suspended in this place of plausible deniability. There could be an explanation for the security guy's weird behavior, or perhaps Camille is about to view something terrifying. For a single moment of perfect tension, both the character and the viewer are caught up in the fear-tinged anticipation of what it is that Camille is going to see when she turns around. But the payoff isn't great. It's a less subtle redux of that scene from The Conjuring, the one when one of the little girls wakes her sister up and points to the shadow behind her open bedroom door and insists that someone is standing there. In The Conjuring, the audience does not actually see the figure that the in-universe witness finds so terrifying, which has a certain horror in and of itself. But here, both Camille and the viewer see the figure standing in the shadows behind the open door. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, of course, and it serves to clarify that this is not only Marianne, but Marianne wearing Carolyn's mother, and then, because the show simply cannot help itself and has never ever heard of subtlety, Carolyn's mother's eyes glow for a moment and then, like, fully pop the fuck out of her head and the moment is ruined. It's just so silly looking. It would be freaky to see in person, sure, but, like, there are literally just normal people walking around who can do that with their eyes, so it's not even inherently supernatural and it looks dumb as shit on screen. It's so ridiculous. 
So Camille gets scared and her back hits the doors she just closed and then there's Emma. She's bleeding from her head, which perhaps explains the nonsense that happens in the rest of this episode because like I keep saying, I thought at first that a lot of this episode was supposed to be dreams because it's all so inexplicable and weirdly done. But maybe it's meant to portray Emma as losing touch with reality because of head trauma. I truly just don't know. I feel like this may be one of those stories wherein I really won't know what the hell I think of it until I see the ending. There's this thing that Lonnie Diane Rich says a lot in her story criticism work, and it's basically that the end of a story teaches you how to read the rest of it. In other words, when talking about story construction, the conclusion of a story helps to tie up the themes and the tone and the arcs and whatnot, and should clarify for the reader what the point of the story is. If a story has an ending that wildly subverts the story, it colors the rest of the narrative inherently. If a story has an ending wildly atonal with the rest of the narrative, it recontextualizes the entire story for the reader. A good example, metatextually speaking, would be Game of Thrones and what we can extrapolate from its ending to the assumed eventual ending of A Song of Ice and Fire. As any longtime fan will know, the ending of Game of Thrones was so shoddily written and careless that it cast a pallor over the rest of the show. It was such a sour pill to take that it soured the rest of the narrative as well. It recontextualized everything, both in-universe and out. In-universe, it cast one of its protagonists into the role of final antagonist and recontextualized all of her actions over the course of her arc. Out-universe, it clarified for the audience the disregard that the showrunners had for actually telling a good story rather than going for maximum shock value and, quote, subverted expectations. And in knowing that the Game of Thrones ending is based loosely upon the bones of the hopefully someday conclusion of A Song of Ice and Fire, we find that the end of Game of Thrones tells us how to read A Song of Ice and Fire as well. It teaches us that Danny's story is not the triumphant hero's tale that we thought or hoped we were reading all along. It recontextualizes and cements her story as a tragedy. And so the end tells you what to make of all the events that came before. So when I say I don't know right now what to think of this story, and that I probably won't know what I really think until I've seen the end, I mean that. I'm not exaggerating. Until either I've seen the end or the conclusion becomes inevitable and obvious, I really don't think I'm going to be able to judge this story. But right now, it has really left me feeling off-kilter and rather disengaged. But perhaps now is the right time to drop my pet theory. Marianne has made it quite clear that her goal right now is to get Emma to continue writing about her. What if the bizarre transitions and ambiguity of what is and is not reality is meant to mimic the experience of reading a book told via unreliable narrator? More specifically, am I meant to take all of these elements, including or perhaps most importantly the gimmick of using chapters as occasional scene transitions, to mean that what we're watching is not so much what happened to Emma as it is the continuation of the Lizzie Lurk series that Marianne is forcing her to write. With Lizzie being dead, perhaps Emma could only think to continue the story by going full the monster at the end of this book and writing herself into the Lizzie Lark story, just as Chuck wrote himself into Supernatural. I don't think I would hate that, if I'm honest. I don't know if I would love it, true, but it would at least be something kind of meta and artsy and might justify some of the other messier artsy choices happening here. So from there, the title sequence concludes to reveal Emma nursing her head wound while she and Camille brainstorm what the hell must have happened last night to Emma's parents. I will note once again that Emma is still wearing the same outfit. To me, this is definitely support of my this-is-all-Emma's-book theory. People never changing their clothes is not a live-action trope. It's a cartoon trope, and a game trope most prominently, but it could also be used to mimic the way personal style is often presented in novels, specifically. The character is introduced with their physical characteristics and one outfit meant to showcase their personality as reflected in their fashion. We don't get an update on what they're wearing in a book every time they appear. In a novel, unless we're talking disguises, MacGuffins, or Tara Gillespie, clothes are usually never mentioned again. So maybe that's what's happening here. Emma is a masculine woman, so she gets a single boyish outfit that she can never change from except to sleep. Vague mentions of pajamas being another rare instance of adult fiction mentioning what someone's wearing. But for now, back to the plot. Emma thinks that somehow Carolyn's mother drugged her parents, but Camille doesn't buy it. But then they're interrupted by a very awkward police officer? Apparently he's a fan of Emma's books, but not her conspiracy theories about Carolyn's mom drugging hers. He says that old people wandering off isn't actually enough to warrant a police search, to which I say, bullshit. These two elders were acting bizarre as all fuck before they wandered off. They might have undiagnosed dementia, or perhaps this is folie à deux. Either way, it's the PD's job to track them down. What the fuck else are small town cops for? Like, do your job, or lose it, dude. On the subject of doing his job, though, he does at least prove smarter than Emma and Camille. 
He spots that bag of skin and teeth and hair hanging on Emma's parents' doorknob once again, with no clue how it got back there, and he takes it as evidence. Bless him, he even puts it in an evidence bag without touching it, blowing the Vinden Police Department's efforts out of the water in a single instant. But he's still cringe, though. He asks Emma to sign some of her books for him, and she bargains with him. If she writes him personalized notes in the books, he will have to actually investigate Carolyn's mom. He ends up taking the deal, and again, this is cringe. But it does further help to cement for me that this has got to be Emma writing a fictionalized version of herself, right? Real people would not respond to someone like Emma as positively and as fawningly as they always do in this story. Surely this is Emma writing herself as a kind of universally beloved figure, complete with a fanbase and wealth wholly unreasonable for someone whose writing career only spans one horror series over the course of ten years? Whatever's happening here, though, it's fucking pathetic. If this cop is a real person who really took this deal, like, get a fucking life, dude. But anyway, we're back to Marianne now. She leaves her house to go do god knows what, and Emma and Camille take this as their cue to break in and poke around. And despite this supposedly being a horror series, it turns into a full-on comedy at this point, complete with buffoon music, and I just do not know what the fuck is happening at this point. It's full-on clown shit, with Emma just running headfirst into fences and climbing Camille and falling on her face, and it's as unfunny as it is out of place. Like, why is there a physical comedy interlude in this horror show? Seriously. Why? How am I supposed to take the horror seriously after this clown act? Is this some kind of a French thing that I just don't get? It is so strange. So, Emma goes poking around Marianne's house and finds a portrait of Carolyn vandalized to reflect Carolyn's eventual suicide. And when she finds a group portrait of herself, Carolyn, and their friends from when they were young teens, Emma sees in the reflective surface of the picture frame a figure standing behind her. It's not Carolyn's mom. It is instead what appears to be a woman in this huge hipped dress, and the figure starts toward Emma, who whips around to find that no one is actually behind her. I imagine, though, that this was the real Marianne, or perhaps the real Catherine? Either way, though, Camille is at the door and she wants to be let in. The two of them go to investigate the locked door in Carolyn's home, and again, I kind of suspect that Carolyn's dad's body might be in there, or hell, maybe it's Marianne's demon husband, who the fuck knows what's going on here at this point? Bizarrely, Emma and Camille decide to break down the door despite the horrific smell and violent movement on the other side, proving that these two women don't have a single brain cell between them, and then the camera pulls back to reveal that Marianne is standing right behind them. Because of course she is. She probably only left the house in the first place to lure them in. She offers them the key to the door, but then tells them that the only thing in the room is, quote, her cats and her teeth, which is ominous, and then she scolds them for not taking off their shoes inside her house. Emma asks where her parents are, but Marianne just says that they're, quote, in the shadows, and then goes to, quote, freshen up. For some reason, Camille and Emma do not take this opportunity to run. And then Marianne is back again with an enormous butcher knife. She calls Emma and Camille two cats, heavily implying that, yeah, that room is where she keeps her victims, and she speculates eating them, and then begins to saw off her own arm to frame them for assault. Now, it is very hard to take this seriously. Emma and Camille watch her doing this without screaming or flinching or running or even, like, gasping in surprise, and Marianne saws at Carolyn's mother's arm for so long that she should have been down to the bone if that knife were actually anything resembling sharp. And it's here that she reminds Emma that all she's really asking for is for Emma to write more Lizzie books, and, like, when she says I don't ask for much, I feel like she might be kind of right about that. Like, maybe the stakes will escalate as the story continues to unfold, sure. But right now, I feel like these are the lowest stakes imaginable. Like, all you've got to do to stop the suicides and the mutilations and the disappearances and shit is just to write a fucking horror novel? Literally any idiot could do that. Writing a novel doesn't even take much time if you aren't worried about the quality of your first draft. Like, I for one can knock out about 2,000 words within the span of an hour. Let's say we're not aiming for a Stephen King doorstopper here, and instead we're going for like a reasonable 90,000. At my writing speed, only about 33 words per minute, it's only going to take 45 hours to write the whole book. Literally just write for an hour a day, and your draft is done in a month and a half. Write for five hours per day, and your first draft is done in a little over a week. If she just wants you to write a book, not a masterpiece, not a work of your heart, not a manifestation of your creative soul, then just sit in the chair for a few hours every day for two weeks, and all the horror stops. That is an extremely low price to pay. Am I wrong? Bonus, writing these novels apparently makes your nightmares go away, so like, 
there had better be an additional threat here, given that there's six more episodes of this, and the entire conflict simply cannot be that Emma doesn't want to write these damn books, because that is absurd. Believe me when I say I am intimately familiar with how taxing and draining it is to write a story that you're not excited about, but it's still one of the least draining jobs that you could possibly be asked to do. Just write the fucking book. Emma and Camille finally bail out of the house at that point, Marianne's voice going demonic in the cheesiest of fashions as her eyes begin to glow. And then we're back to the cop. It is a farce all over again. He reads the sarcastic note that Emma left for him in which Emma once again insults her readers and dangles the evidence out his window, fumbles his cigarette, honks at other drivers, all while this, like, Irish jig type of music plays in the background. I just do not understand the tonal whiplash that is happening in this show. So, next, the cop stops at this occult curio shop and flashes the hex bag or whatever it is, scaring the absolute shit out of the clerk. He tells him to go get that witch shit the hell out of his shop, and he kinda sorta explains how it works. Coincidentally, it works the same way as the first appearance of hex bags way back in Supernatural's Malleus Maleficarum, which is fun because I think it implies that Supernatural was actually more accurate to real-world lore about deal-with-the-devil-style witchcraft than I had realized. So, before leaving the shop, the cop grabs a Jailer of Demons necklace or medal or whatever it is, and he asks to take it, though the clerk says it won't help. Whoever this bag was for, she is cursed. Cut to the cursed girl in question. Emma is walking down to the tiny shipwreck from her childhood, and she's starting to indulge in her vices when another young woman walks up to her. This is apparently Aurora, one of Emma's childhood friends, and apparently Aurora is still mad at her over the lighthouse, whatever that means. Like I've said before, I am mildly interested in finding out more about what the hell is happening in Emma's backstory. It's just that the rest of the show isn't really entertaining me enough as to make me wait patiently for the reveal. I'm bored, honestly, and so I want answers to my questions as soon as physically possible. Give me something interesting very soon, I beg of you. Apparently, Aurora is a teacher now, and the lighthouse used to be a school, which seems odd, but okay. Aurora says that she doesn't read the Lizzie Lark books, but that she saw Caro's mom yesterday, which is interesting. If Aurora saw Caro's mom, in what capacity did she see Caro's mom? Was Caro's mom in full Marianne mode, or does that only come out around impending victims? Either way, Aurora says that all their old friends will be at Carolyn's funeral, and she asks if Emma will be there. Emma says she won't because she's looking for her parents, and the two promise to write each other, with the obvious implication that they will definitely not actually be doing so. And then it's back to Emma's house. Camille is working her ass off trying to keep Emma's career on track, and Emma is just drinking her ass off. And then Camille disappears. It's definitely a dream. I think. The lights go out, and Emma's glass fills with teeth and hair and nail clippings, and then the world begins to spin while someone whispers her name. So is Emma really dreaming? Is she hallucinating? Is she so drunk that she's tapping into something supernatural? I think this is just dreams, but like, I don't fucking know anymore. Either way, she finds her parents prostrate and naked in the dark, begging her to write while Marianne looks on. Emma protests that she killed Lizzie Lark and so she can't write anymore, and then we're back to that mysterious hole in the ground. Despite how tiny it looks, Emma stares down into its tight confines, and then it is suddenly wide enough for Marianne, the Carolyn's mom version of her, to stand inside it and leer at Emma amidst a chorus of creepy children's voices chanting Marianne's little nursery rhyme. It is a moment of successful, effective, creepy imagery. But Marianne has got a butcher knife down in the hole, and when she stabs Emma in the eye, we smash cut to a sea roiling behind a blood-red filter. And then there's a cloudy sky, the Eldon Town sign, the cliffs, and then we're off somewhere else. Now, everything that happens from here on out, I don't know what to do with it. I think it's all dreams, because it's all very flowy and dreamlike, but despite the rest of the episode operating on dream logic, it also kind of seems like everything that happened in these dream scenes actually happened. So, I don't know. Maybe the next episode will help clarify this for me, but like, right now, I am just at a loss on how to parse this entire mess. We start with a little boy in a rain slicker. A yellow rain slicker, because every horror property needs at least one little boy in a yellow rain slicker now. And he is for some reason poking what looks like a dead seagull that the subtitles keep calling Mr. Crow. The kid runs for the hills when Marianne rolls up, but stops dead when she screams his name. She asks if he killed the bird, and he insists that he found it like that. She warns him that one day he too will be a limp corpse, just like that poor bird he was just molesting, and then she spits in the bird's eye. Why? Well, I poked around Google a bit to see if this was some kind of a European thing or like a witchcraft thing that I just don't get, 
but that does not appear to be the case. Instead, it just seems to be a reference to the idiom of spitting in someone's eye, which is literally just another way of saying insulting someone, which is not remotely interesting enough to warrant forcing me to watch a woman fucking spit on a dead bird carcass. Again, saliva triggers my gag reflex. Please stop showing it to me. But while I'm trying to puzzle out why this poor corpse was just assaulted like this, the camera pans to a bigger note of confusion. Emma is suddenly in the back seat of Marianne's car, which I really want to reiterate is something that I interpreted as a dream. Otherwise, I really thought maybe I had missed something somehow. Like, how does this scene follow from the last thing that we saw? The last time we really saw Emma, so far as I can tell, she was drinking at the wreck and talking to Aurora. So how the fuck did she end up here if this is not a dream? Where is Camille? What is going on? I can be infinitely patient if I am sufficiently invested, but the show at this point has not earned as much patience from me as it is demanding, which leaves me frustrated and annoyed rather than luring me into further investment. So let's get into this confusing ass nonsense, I guess. Emma tells Marianne to give her parents back, and Marianne locks her into the car and tells her that they're going somewhere. That somewhere is Carolyn's funeral, and the church is packed when they come inside. Marianne takes Emma by the hand and drags her up to Carolyn's body, and then she spits in Carolyn's eye, just as she did to that poor bird. Emma seems to flash between two perceptions of reality here, one in which the church is packed, and another in which only the surviving shipwreck kids are in attendance. I don't know if either of these is actually happening, or if one of them should be understood as more true than the other. Perhaps this is merely meant to show Emma's perception of the audience. There is a crowd, but the only people she really cares about are the shipwreck kids. Or maybe none of this is real, and she's only dreaming. It really doesn't make sense for this to not be a dream. Everyone's behavior is so bizarre that it really is just pure dream logic, up to and including the point at which everyone turns in unison to watch Emma flee the church. And then we're back at the wreck, and the black man from the church, Sebi, catches her attention and joins her. There's a little hint of something potentially romantic between them here. It's good you were with Caro's mom, he tells her, which is extremely creepy in a very understated way. How is everyone else in the shipwreck gang, or whatever it's called, getting along with Carolyn's mom these days? Is she only Marianne for Carolyn and Emma and Camille? Is she succeeding in feigning normalcy when she's with other people? Or are Aurora and Sebi under her spell somehow? Or is any of this even happening? Has Emma actually even spoken with Aurora and Sebi, or is she just dreaming or hallucinating or something else? The dream logic of the scene continues. Seppi mentions his friends, and immediately the other shipwreck kids are there, joining them. Emma is by no means comfortable, but she gets along well enough. She suggests that they drink to Carolyn's memory, and one of the men immediately has a bottle and enough glasses for all of them. Again, this is speak of the devil dream logic. The gang drinks and drinks, and then Emma mentions Camille, who is suddenly right there. Speak of the devil, dream logic, I repeat, etc. Later, I suppose, or perhaps simply next, Aurora is sitting off by herself. Emma joins her in a scene that I personally feel was pretty undeniably sapphic in the subtext of the, you know, awkward ex-girlfriends variety, and Emma asks Aurora if she thinks Camille is pretty. I repeat, these are pretty clearly sapphics. It's sapphics all the way down. But Emma clarifies that Camille is taken and that they don't have to worry about her stealing any of the boys. They snuggle and watch the waves, it's sapphic, while the three men chat up Camille and one of the men gets out his phone to show Camille his, quote, blackmail material on Emma. It's an article Emma wrote about mothers, her mother's flaws specifically, and again with the dream logic. Despite being too far away to realistically hear what the guy said, Emma immediately knows what he's trying to show Camille on his phone. Now, I want to say right up front that it's possible that I'm supposed to understand that this is the thing that Emma did as a kid that she should be ashamed of, and if it is, I am calling bullshit. Writing about your feelings is literally what kids do. If her parents are still upset about that 15 years after the fact, then her parents are the problem, not her. And also, it's like the most boring possible answer to the little mystery of Emma's secret shame. Whatever the case may be, though, this is the scene that tells me this whole exchange isn't a dream, despite the loose logic of the whole thing. Emma makes Camille promise not to read the essay, and in a more grounded scene later that doesn't appear to be a dream, Camille actually does read this essay, and Emma calls her out on breaking her promise. So I guess this isn't a dream, despite how much it feels like one? Or maybe that scene is a dream too? Am I the only one who really thinks this whole scene feels like a dream? I just, I feel so lost and uncertain about everything that happens in the back half of this episode, and I almost have to say I'm excited to watch more just so I can try to better understand what the fuck is real and what isn't. Like, 
I'm not excited to watch more right now because I care about this story. I'm desperate to watch more because I'm so damn confused by what I've seen. Anyway, Emma is back to bragging about how everyone loved her once upon a time. One of the boys has always been secretly in love with her, the other was actually dating her, and the other had, I guess, strong brotherly friendship feelings for her? Everyone adored her, in other words, bringing me back to my vague hope that this Emma is actually a flattened version of herself that she's writing into a horror book. Otherwise, this is the point at which I've got to go ahead and call Emma a Mary Sue. She is a complete asshole, yes, but everyone universally adores her except for the authority figures who just don't understand her. That's a Mary motherfucking Sue. It's a type of Sue, usually written as a man, yes, but it's a Sue nonetheless. Or a stew, if you're precious about gendering the terminology. Anyway, dream logic again, or maybe just drunk logic? The scene ends with Emma just flopping back onto the ground, and there's clearly some kind of a time skip that happens. Suddenly everyone's looming over her in a very untethered-from-reality kind of way, and everyone is leaving as nonchalantly and dream logically as they arrived. Sebi suddenly reveals that he has a wife he's never mentioned before. Aurora tells her to stay in town, and she promises to stay forever. Tonio offers to take her home and confesses to having always been in love with her. Arnaud says that he's going to stay at the shipwreck with Carol who is dead? It's all dreamy and ominous, and clearly it's foreshadowing, right? Except apparently it's not a dream, so maybe it's not foreshadowing either. I don't know. I'm just fucking lost. Cut to Emma's parents' house. Camille is on her phone, reading the article that Emma wrote and made her promise not to read. It's a critical look at her relationship with her mother, and I must reiterate, there is nothing wrong with that. She was, what, 12? 13, 14, or 15 at the absolute most? If your preteen or your teenager hurts your fucking feelings, allow me to invite you to get the fuck over it. They are a child. Their brains literally are not done yet. Wipe away your fucking tears and grow a pair of ovaries, lady. Teens struggle, teens lash out, and teens hurt their parents' feelings. It's literally your job as a parent to help them navigate the emotional turmoil of adolescence and learn how to process and express their emotions without hurting other people. You cannot fucking hold some shitty thing they said about you against them for the rest of their goddamn lives. They are a child, you are an adult, and how about you fucking act like it? Seriously, if you're not prepared to set your emotions aside to raise your children into functional adults, then just don't have kids. If you aren't emotionally stable enough to weather your child saying something shitty about you, I repeat, don't have children. To quote my favorite comedian, we do not suffer from an underpopulation problem in this world. Anyway, I suppose this is meant to be a kind of rock bottom scene for Emma here. She's realizing that she scares people now and that her old friends don't love her like they used to, and of course she's furious about Camille reading her essay about her mom. It's a very strange moment that's not particularly sympathetic. Again, that shitty essay she wrote isn't something she should, as an adult, still be feeling guilty over. And that her rock bottom moment results not in any acknowledgement of her alcoholism, but in her starting to write a new Lizzie Lark book? Well, that's a strange choice. Not the part about writing when she hits an emotional rock bottom, that makes sense. But the ongoing thing of her alcohol abuse being effectively ignored is... Well, I suppose it will depend on what the rest of the show does in regards to her drinking, but it seems like a strange, perhaps inadvisable choice right now. There's definitely a trope of conflating creativity with substance abuse, and I worry that the show is going to play into that in kind of a toxic fashion, so let me be the first to assure you, substance abuse does not fuel creativity. It kneecaps it, if it doesn't outright kill it. Sure, Stephen King has entire masterpieces that he claims he can't even remember because he wrote them while out of his fucking mind, but that is not the norm. For most of us, substance abuse kills creativity and definitely productivity, and oftentimes it outright replaces it. For a lot of us, creativity is a form of dissociation at worst and a coping mechanism at best, and that's literally what substance abuse is. Why write to work through your trauma, after all, when you could just drown it in a bottle instead? But Emma chooses to do both. She gets to the bottom of the bottle, finds no solace, and so decides to resurrect her murdered muse. As cattle throw themselves off a cliff, Marianne rises ominously into the air, and Emma's bloodied naked mother emerges from the sea, Emma once again starts up the fight between Lizzie Lark and the demon witch Marianne. It might, in retrospect, be a really cool moment, but I can't attest to that until I know that there's going to be some kind of a worthwhile payoff. What does this moment mean for the larger story, is what I'm asking. I hope it means that Emma has, by resurrecting her author avatar, symbolically committed herself to the fight against Marianne. If that's what's happening here, this was a very powerful moment for the narrative, and one that I think I really love a lot, even if I don't adore the rest of what's happening around it. 
But if this isn't a moment of, like, seizing control of one's narrative and committing to the battle ahead, then I remain bored. And if the next two episodes don't at least try to clarify for me what's dream and what's reality, I might very well riot. So as I finish up this recording, I am intending to watch the next two episodes of Marianne within the next hour or so. As established listeners of the show should know, what I do, at least at this point in my process, what I do is that I film reaction videos for my first time watching anything I cover, and then I sit down and I write the script, and then I record the podcast, and usually that's fine. But this show in particular, I feel so adrift while I'm watching it that I can only imagine how utterly nothing the reaction videos are going to be. It's either going to be people laughing at how confused I am, or people being very frustrated with my inability to follow the mind screw of it all upon my first viewing. I am, of course, going to continue recording those reaction videos. If the show does, in fact, turn around wildly, that will mean that I get to have my moment of, oh shit, I actually do love this on screen, recorded forever for everyone to see. Otherwise, it will just be a big long slog of me going, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I don't get that, this is dumb, blah blah blah. Let's hope it's not going to be that. But if you are interested in seeing my Marianne reaction videos or any other reaction videos that I have done so far, including things like Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, Dark, uh, Squid Game, The Duchess, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, Zach Stone is going to be famous, and on and on, then you are going to want to head over to my Patreon, where for $5 per month, you get access to all of my reaction videos in their full-length form. Edited shorter versions of those videos will occasionally appear on YouTube, and of course, $1 per month patrons get access to occasional polls determining what it is that I'm going to be watching. Right now, obviously, I'm covering Marianne. Next week, I will be watching something else. So if you want to go get your opinion heard, head over to Patreon, contribute a dollar to help me decide what it is that I watch. Other than that, if you are not willing or able to contribute to the Patreon, no judgment, of course, you may instead want to head over to your podcatcher of choice and leave a rating or a review. That would definitely help. Alternately, you can tell a friend about the show or talk about it on social media or just keep downloading episodes as they come out. That alone is the most appreciated thing. And now, with all of that said, that concludes my coverage of Marianne episode one and episode two. I will, of course, be back very soon with my coverage of episode three and episode four, and as always, thank you so much for listening.